Well, it's a great book that you're studying, uh, the book of Acts. When uh, John mentioned that you guys are in the book of Acts, I'd actually just started uh, my own personal devotions in the book of Acts, so it was a great delight to be able to prepare some things that I was already starting to work on. Um, this week and next week, we have two really key chapters in the book of Acts, Game Changers. Have you ever considered, have you ever felt unworthy to be a gospel bearer? Or have you ever doubted the call that's on your life to be that? And have you ever wondered how God will transform Shell Harbour? These two ideas are addressed in, of uh, being a gospel bearer and how God will transform uh, places and people are key themes in, in chapter 9 and throughout the book of Acts. And so it's worth remembering from where we've come. Chapter 1 verse 1 says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And the inference is that in this second volume of Luke's Gospel, the book of Acts, he's going to continue to do and teach, what Jesus is going to continue to do and teach. And then, of course, in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Frontiers which the Gospel was about to cross. Then Stephen is murdered in chapter 7. And chapter 8 opens with Saul sanctioning his murder. But with the gospel crossing one of these front frontiers from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And so the gospel's already starting to go out. And our Bible college principal used to say that God buries his messengers, but he will never bury his message. Now this background is really important for chapter 9 because chapter 9 opens with the word meanwhile. While all this is going on, chapters 7 and 8, murder, persecution, Christians fleeing for their lives and leaving Jerusalem. Not to mention Philip's trip to Samaria, his visit with the Ethiopian. And while all this is happening, Saul's campaign is growing. He's been to the high priest and he's obtained a letter of authority to drag any who follow that way, any who follow that Jewish offshoot that believes Jesus is their Messiah, back to Jerusalem. And if his treatment of Stephen is anything to go by, he's not taking them there to reason with them. Now we learn in verse 3 that he's approaching Damascus, where some of those who... Uh, who of those belonging to the way had fled in the, in the dispersion of people. And Damascus was a beautiful oasis in, uh, in, in an area that otherwise desert. And he's probably been walking for a week. And he's approaching Damascus. And you can imagine with his level of zeal, the expectation, the anticipation of arriving and being able to fulfill his purpose for being there. There's nothing like religion to provoke that level of zeal in someone. They scheme. They strategize. They move against in order to get what they want. Any time for logic has passed. Any time for reasoning long gone. They're on a mission and it consumes their entire life. Now many places in our, in our world suffer this sort of person and regime daily. 
entire countries where even knowing or associating with Christians will earn you extra unwanted attention. Your movements are watched. Your internet searches are monitored. People are jailed. And some are murdered. But this type of person and this type of regime is not always outside the church. Those who move strongly in favour of tradition. Those who rile when things don't move according to their values and preferences. Those who accuse. Those who try to slow or stop ministries because of some apparent theological reason. Those who divide relationships and gain a following to achieve what they're wanting to do. Those who are so interested in their own gain that everything else must give way. The religious spirit is famous for this sort of behaviour. Those for whom Jesus is a system provider, a rule giver, an order maker, instead of an older brother, a friend, and understood rightly, a lover. A psychologist named Jong says, fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating secret doubts, and religion has no security. It's full of doubts. And that's why the religious spirit fights so hard to bring order and control. And Saul is right there at the head. In his first volume, in chapter 9, Luke says that Jesus sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem to go and die. And in his second volume, in chapter 9, Saul sets his face like a flint towards Damascus to go and kill. But God is sovereign. And his missional plan won't be halted by a raging Pharisee. It won't be altered by a letter from some high priest. It will not be interrupted by religious zeal, by rage, by initiative or by anything else. Acts 9 shows us that God's missional plan is sovereign. And the first thing I want you to see in verses 1 to 9 is Jesus, the great scheme stopper. The light flashes it was brighter than the sun, Paul will say later as he's reporting before the authorities. The voice speaks, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now you'll be forgiven for thinking that, didn't Jesus ascend a few chapters back? And yes, but here he is in this special face-to-face -face meeting with the one who's trying to destroy him, his message, and his followers. The whole party heard him, but only Saul sees him, and now he's blind. Jesus is here not just to put an end to his scheme, but to completely reverse it. I just love in Psalm 2 when God questions, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against, against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's such a pathetic image. Kings and rulers gathered together, united to move against God. What possible hope could they have against the one who spoke to bring them into being? Against the one who breathed life into them? 
The Lord laughs. <laughs> he scoffs. He rebukes. And he terrifies. Don't try to move against my king, you rebellious little created beings, he's saying to Saul. Saul's intention is to stop the way at any cost. Saul is moving against Jesus. Jesus receives Stephen, but he's not going to receive any more disciples from the hands of Saul. As Stott puts it, Christ arrested him before he had the chance to arrest any Christians in Damascus. The scheme stops now. He rebukes him and he terrifies him. And he does it so gently, like only Jesus can do. He speaks to him in his mother tongue and he repeats his name, Saulo, Saulo. Just think of the times that Jesus said that to Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, but I've prayed for you. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you, gather your children as chicks under my wings. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a rebuke, but it's gentle and it's sweet. Do you know that sweet rebuke of Jesus? Perhaps at your conversion. Perhaps many times since, when Jesus takes you and he shows you and he changes your course and it stings but it's so good and right at the same time and you break down and worship. Now if you are God in heaven, you have more than a, nat a few natural options to eradicate this scheme that Saul's on. From Jerusalem to Damascus, it's a walk of about a week. From Imagine Shell Harbour to Kuma or to Bathurst. It's that sort of distance. It's a long walk. And it's dangerous too. He could have had Saul fall. He could have had a rock fall from above on top of him. A lion, a bear, dehydration. Could have even put an angel with a flaming sword in front of him to stop him. If you're God, what do you choose? Well, God chose to appear and to speak three phrases, one of association with his people. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? One regarding his identity. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And one of instruction. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. It doesn't seem to be a yelling rebuke like I might be tempted to do with my children if they're defiant or... or to others who seem to be opposing God from within his family, there's emotion, there's compassion, there's grace. And grace isn't just permissive, letting people doing, do things wrong against us or against someone, like many people want when they've done something wrong. Grace received is always redemptive. It always buys the person back into relationship. And that's how he reverses the scheme. That's where Luke's going to take us in a minute. For now, there's another important element in God's sovereign missional plan. Look with me at verses 10 to 19. Jesus has a man in Damascus. Someone whose life is on the line according to this party that's making their way up to Damascus and according to the letter that they carry. His name is Ananias. And it's not the same unfaithful Ananias that died in chapter 5, obviously. This Ananias will be faithful 
to God. And we read that God appears to him in a vision and asks him to bring healing to his murderer's eyes. Now news travels faster than Saul. And he knows in verses 13 to 14 of Saul, of his intent and of his authority to carry it out. And so he asks God, are you sure? And Jesus replies, one of assurance, of purpose, and of justice. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Ananias obeys. Saul receives his sight together with the Holy Spirit and he's baptised and then he gets up and he breaks his three-day fast. Now we've seen Jesus as the scheme stopper in verses 1 to 9 and here we see Jesus as the great matchmaker in verses 10 to 19. Now we live in an apartment so I don't have much room or access to, to a space where I can do a lot of handyman sort of stuff, build things and so forth. But when I do, I'm, I want to involve my sons in that. I want them to learn how to use tools and to do those sorts of things from me as I learnt from my father. And so occasionally we've been able to do a few projects. Now, you'll know if you're a father that when it comes to those important measurements or those important cuts, you look after those yourself and you give the less important ones to your children to get them used to using the tools and so it doesn't ruin the whole project. Now, Jesus has stopped the scheme, but now he's got to deal with the schema. It's an important one. It's his chosen instrument to carry the gospel before the the kings and the rulers of the Gentiles and before the people of Israel. But Jesus doesn't handle it himself. He gives the tool, so to speak, to Ananias. And we're going to see why he does this so clearly next week. But it's important to note here that Jesus makes the match between his own and those whom he is calling, because Jesus is the great matchmaker. And as a result of this match made in heaven... The result of this match made in heaven is a man transformed. Look at me with this last part of our passage today in verses 20 to 31. Jesus stops the scheme. He makes the match. And now he transforms the man. Verse 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. He was persecuting Jesus three days ago and now he's preaching his divinity. Saul's conversion was his commissioning to preach. The transformation is immediate and it's radical. So much so that those who hear him question, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners back to the chief priest? Verse 21. Yes, he's the guy. Do you remember when I said that grace received is redemptive? You cannot continue along the same path. You can't not change. You can't remain the same. If you're not transformed, you haven't received the grace that's available. But Saul did, and he wasn't the same man. He no longer conspired. He no longer plotted. He no longer sought to free himself from the shackles of his maker. But this changed man incites the same rage in those who were like he was. People don't like your holiness showing up their darkness. 
People don't like your intimacy with God showing up their lack of it. People don't like your success in ministry showing up their absence of it. And this passage shows us how very zealous we are for ourselves and our own gain. All of us. Until that transformation is complete. And so we see Saul having to run from those he would have led, fleeing from those who would have followed him, hiding from those who would have killed with him. Firstly in Damascus in verses 22 to 25 and then in Jerusalem in verses 29 to 30. We don't allow people to change. We're scared of how their transformation might show us up. That's what happened when we first believed, right? When those friends kept accusing us, kept hurling insults at us. And that's what can happen when our fellow believers recognize spiritual growth and change in us. Always ready to bring an accusation against us. <laughs> thought you were a Christian. <laughs> thought you said you'd grown. And they say it to undermine our faith. They won't be shown up. They won't be shown to be wrong. And they won't be shown to be lesser than you. It takes a humble person to accept the transformed one. It takes an equally transformed person to accept another. And so in Jerusalem it was Barnabas who welcomed Saul and brought him to the apostles used by God in a similar way to Ananias, used by God to provide for the message by accepting his chosen and appointed messenger. That's the transformed ones who enjoy God. It's the transformed ones who God entrusts with his message. Have you been transformed? I remember in April of 1995, sitting in a church that I'd been invited to by a friend, and for the first time I saw Jesus, saw who he really was. I'd heard about him from my infancy, but now I heard him. And he took me from my stupid way of life, my search for significance in relationships and in sport and in hobbies. And he transformed me. And I remember in the weeks following distinctly, Reading, so I started in Genesis in the Bible and reading and seeing, hearing these stories about Noah and Abraham and they were like this whisper that I'd heard of decades earlier. But suddenly they became real to me on the page in front of me. My transformation was immediate and it was radical. And my growth continues because I'm not there yet. But what's your story? How have you been transformed? Make sure you tell it to someone as we eat after church. Have you encountered Jesus? Have you really been able to see him? And if so, then you're also commissioned. Commissioned to testify to what you've seen in Jesus and to your experience of him. And if not, maybe you're seeing him now in this story. In Saul's collision with him on the road to Damascus to killing his followers. And maybe he's stopping your religious scheme to make church the way you think it should be. Or to change or adjust your Bible study or to bring someone in conf to conformity with, you think ha with how you think they should be. Maybe he's about to transform you too. 
Maybe you were transformed once, or maybe you thought you were transformed, but you now feel much more like the old Saul, raging and plotting and destroying. Maybe you're just holding back an area from God for him to work in or change or own. Maybe you're trying to control circumstances and not allowing God to be God. Maybe you're refusing his instruction and guidance. And if you have unresolved relational issues that depend on you, if you're harboring unforgiveness against others, if you throw your relational weight around to get what you want, his invitation for you is to walk with him, not to rage against him. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're against. Get up and let my servant minister to you. It's the transformed Saul, the Ananias and the Barnabas, who enjoy God, who are joyful, who are the sons of encouragement. It's the transformed ones who have the the blessedness of carrying the message and providing for its communication. It's the people who hear from God, people who have intentionally postured themselves to listen. How have you intentionally postured yourself to listen for God? How are you, are making, how are you making yourself available to God to use in the transformation of us all? How might you? One thing that is certain in relationships is when there, there is little communication, there is much misunderstanding. You shouldn't presume to be an instrument of God unless you have been transformed and unless that drives you into constant and intimate communication with him. In his word, in prayer, and in communion and fellowship with other believers, the sovereign Lord has a sovereign mission or plan God transformed a murderous scheme into an opportunity for transformation and for his word to go forward. Jesus is the great scheme stopper. He's the great matchmaker. And he's a great man changer. Where are you on that continuum? And where do you want to be? Because right now God is inviting you to stop, to allow to be changed. What is your next step? What's he inviting you to do? And when are you going to do it? Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts now through this word and identify anything in us that needs to be owned, that needs to be confessed, that needs to be ridden from our lives. Father, forgive us for anything that we have done to move against you, to stand in your way, to work against your word and your kingdom. And heal us, bring bring clarity to the steps that you want to take that you want us to take so that we can walk in step with you and not out of step with you and certainly not against you. Oh Lord, I pray for your forgiveness over these things and ask you 
that you bless us with that clarity of those steps that you would like us to take. Lord, help us too to understand the commission that you've put on our lives. That which you want us to do to be your representative so that your kingdom would be extended through us and in this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.